Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. Well, one of the coalition government's first concrete actions since taking power has been labelled incoherent and pointless, while the Labour Party is linking it to conspiracies. The government's 100-day plan includes a directive to reject proposed changes to health regulations overseen by the World Health Organisation. Now, the regulations are supposed to help stop diseases from spreading around the globe. New Zealand First has demanded that there has to be a national interest test first before any amendments are accepted. The deadline was today and the government's achieved it, but for what purpose? Here is our Deputy Political Editor, Craig McCulloch. One day, two days, three days now, the Coalition's 100-day plan tick-tocking by while ministers tick off their to-do list. One of the first tasks a missive urgently sent to the World Health Organisation pulling the handbrake on New Zealand's agreement to new health regulation changes. We want to make sure that we actually take a pause and actually make sure it meets a national interest test. It's the consequence of a New Zealand first demand made during coalition negotiations that all UN agreements that limit decision-making first be weighed against the country's interest. Frankly, I find the points being made incoherent. What is it doing there? What are they trying to achieve by largely stating what we already do. Michael Baker is best known for his prominence during the COVID-19 pandemic, a professor of public health at Otago University. He says ministers already routinely consider what's in New Zealand's best interest before signing up to any substantial international agreements. Absolutely standard procedure. Over the past few years, though, the World Health Organisation has become something of a lightning rod, with critics accusing the body of plotting to seize power from national governments. Is this a sop to the conspiracy theorists? Well, I think it would be easy to read it like that. I I, I guess you just have to ask the people who wrote it. And so RNZ did. The New Zealand First Leader and now Deputy Prime Minister Winston Peters did not respond to a request for comment. Back in May, he posted online claiming the WHO planned to effectively take control of independent decision-making away from sovereign countries. A month later, the party's number two, Shane Jones, published a column urging against ceding more power to the global body. He didn't respond to RNZ's interview request either. The former health minister, Aisha Verrill, is more than happy to fill the void. I'm deeply concerned that I see that sort of rubbish about the WHO and international health regulations on the internet and all of a sudden it's in a coalition document. Those health regulations are used to make sure that when there is a disease with pandemic potential, there is an early warning given out across the world. The new health minister, Shane Reti, also declined to speak with RNZ, but has issued a statement stressing this is an interim position while ministers seek further advice. He says the government will not walk away from all the good work on international health carried out by the WHO over decades. But Aisha Verrill wants more. The government needs to be able to speak and justify the decisions that it has taken on these quite fringe concerns. RNZ's interview requests remain open. Indeed they do. That was our Deputy Political Editor Craig McCulloch. And uh, tributes uh, for, from the United States and abroad continue to flow in following the death of Henry Kissinger yesterday at the age of 100. Now, one of the former U.S. Secretary of State's most memorable moments was opening the door of relations with China. In 1973, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts in ending the Vietnam War, but his record remains well, very controversial. 
He also played a crucial role in paving the way for Middle East peace accords. Earlier I spoke to our Washington correspondent, Carolyn Malone. He is renowned for his diplomacy uh, with major influence, not just over U.S. policy, but over major world events. In the 70s, he secretly visited China, and that led to President Nixon actually having this historic opening with China and an improvement of U.S.-China relations. And in fact, as recently as this summer, he even visited um, China again at the age of 99. And at that time, it said that he did, in fact, help improve relations to the point now where she was able to visit the U.S. just a short time ago. His Nobel Peace Prize, well, he did win that, um, along with Vietnam's leader at the time, for their secret negotiations that led to the 73 Paris Agreement that ultimately led to um, U.S. military withdrawing from the Vietnam War. So a significant time there as well. Um, But he has been hugely criticised over that time. You know, people have called him a pragmatist, but also someone that has agreed on on things without principle and with also ignoring human rights. So he is somewhat of a divisive figure. Yes, I see criticised for his support for various regimes in South America in particular. Yes, absolutely. Across South America, also in Africa, he had some involvement in the 70s with South Africa. He visited and that was a time of an apartheid government, and his visit was seen as in some ways supporting what they were doing. In Chile as well, in which he seemed to be you know, indirectly responsible for a CIA coup. And also back to Asia on Cambodia, you know, in some ways being held responsible for the bombing of Cambodia in connection to the Vietnam War. A ground invasion, of course, followed that year in Southeast Asia. And that, you know, has led to a murderous takeover of Khmer Rouge. So really huge amounts of impact on major global events. But he is, you know, praised by lots of people in the US and globally. You know, since his passing, we've heard from Xi, who's praised him. We've heard from President Putin of Russia. We've also heard from the Israeli prime minister saying that his departure marks the end of someone with formidable intellect and diplomatic prowess. Uh, UK, EU, all coming to terms and saying that he was, you know, a respected diplomat, despite some criticism. I see George, uh, former President uh, George W. Bush and Tony Blair have also praised him, describing him as a, an artist of diplomacy. Have any current US or British leaders said anything yet? We haven't heard directly from the White House yet, but yes, um, former US President George Bush saying that America's lost one of its most dependable and distinctive voices on foreign affairs. Former US ambassador to China, who also worked with Kissinger at the time, saying that the world has lost a tireless advocate for peace, which is interesting given some of the criticism that's been put to to him. Uh, Martin Indyk, former U.S. special envoy, saying Kissinger was sceptical of those who would aim to try and achieve peace because he was more focused on establishing order because that was more reliable than peace. And that was the Washington correspondent, Carolyn Malone. Now, a small faction of Wellington City councillors are raising concerns about Mayor Tori Farno's admission that she has a problem with alcohol. Ms Farno, who declined our request for an interview, says she's only human, is getting the help she needs and is entirely committed to the role. At least one councillor, Nicola Young, is calling for the Mayor to step down, though the majority are expressing their support. We're joined now by the Takapu Northern Ward councillor, Tony Randall. Good morning, Tony. Good morning. What is your position on this issue? My well, I think I think Tory is having a tough time, um, and I think being the mayor is a tough job. So first of all, I have to say I'm glad she's getting the support and and help that uh, she she needs, and I fully support her personally. 
Um, but I'm concerned she's not able to give the, you know, the 100%, 150% is needed to be the mayor of the capital city. What what evidence is there that she's not? I mean, we saw a lot of goodwill from councillors towards her yesterday, uh, Zoom meetings, this sort of thing. Uh, Is there any, what, what evidence is that she's not doing her job? Well, I mean, I was unaware of the of the incident, but what's happened is, um, you know, the mayor seems, from my from my experience, to be uh, increasingly remote. Um, she's uh, executing a code of conduct complaint against uh, five councillors, so it's the, the the council is quite divided. Uh, she's cancelled the councillor only meetings, which you know was the one forum where we could get together and thrash out stuff behind closed doors. And so, you know, the, the communication that ne- is needed around the council table is not happening. But that's not what we're hearing from other councillors, Rebecca Matthews, for one. I mean, is this just a di- politically divided issue? I mean, uh, it, those I, on I the left, I, the councillor seem, and the majority seem perfectly fine with her continuing in the role and don't see an issue. Look, um, I, I, I'm speaking from my own experience. Um, uh, she's... Uh, I think the council was facing some very, very big decisions going forward, and we need to be um, working together um, in an open way to make sure that we make some sensible uh, evidence-based decisions when we come to the big stuff, which is early next year. But again, what obviously the, this is an issue. It is something which has generated public scrutiny, um, there is media attention. No one's shying away from that fact. It is a senior position to be the mayor of a major city in this country. But again, why? in what way has her, her day-to-day job being affected and going to be affected by this? Those decisions are still going to be made. Those meetings are still going to be had, aren't they? Well, I mean, I, I don't... I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't really see her. Um, now, that could be a political divide. It could be that... Uh, the mayor has uh, decided that she's only going to work with the Labour and Green councillors going forward, which is fine. Um, she hasn't said that to any of us. Um, and I, I you know, she, she, did she? Not... She offered. I mean, uh, she's offered one-on-one meetings with with all the councillors, hasn't she? Um, I think. I think um, being the mayor is more about being in the middle of the of the, of all of the conversations. And the conversations, she's not having the conversation, certainly not with me and not with some of the other councillors that I know. And as I say, you know, she's cancelled the councillor only time, which was the, one of the main forums by within which we could communicate what, was, what we thought and what we needed going forward. Do you think there is a double standard being applied here? Julianne Genta yesterday argues that there have been in the past plenty of male politicians who have had issues with drinking and haven't earned the same level of scrutiny. Uh, but look, I'm, a, I'm a, like like the mayor. I'm new to council, um, and so uh, I don't see. Uh, I'm not sure. I haven't had another mayor, um, and so I, I've got nothing to compare it to. I, I just and, and like I like Tory, and I think she's a, a, a sensible person with a, with the uh, best wishes of the city in her heart. But uh, it's a, it's, she's in a high-profile, high-stress job, and uh, and it's not really happening as far as I can see. And I'm just, you know, I'm just concerned that next year we've got these huge decisions to be made. We've also got the new district plan to be fixed up, and we're not ready. All right. What should happen now, then, Tony? In your view? 
Well, I think I think Tory needs to step back and, and take care of herself. Um, Hang on, step know, back. That, you're saying she should step away from the job permanently. Just to be clear, what's your view? Yeah, I think she should resign. I I, I think it's it's um, not the. Uh, I don't think that in her role, um, the council's not coming together underneath uh, underneath her leadership, and that uh, and the communication is not really happening. Uh, through the mayoral office, that needs to happen. We've we've got massive problems financially, and also in, in terms of some of the direction where the city's going. And Tory is just not there. Um, look, I I hate saying this because I wanted to, her to succeed. We all did, uh, all do. Sorry, I should say. And of course, it could well be that she is going to succeed eventually. But right at this minute, from what I can see, it's not working. Okay, Tony, thank you very much for your time. Tony Randall, the Atakapu Northern Ward Councillor. An Auckland church is admitting it did not have smoke alarms in four temporary homes which caught fire early yesterday morning, sending people fleeing for their lives. It can't explain the failure. And the fire service says 18 people who lived in the cabins at Mangari Bridge are lucky to be alive. Jordan Dunn has the story. It's a day that will live in these people's memories for the rest of their lives. Everything they own going up in smoke in just a couple of hours. Rami Nicholas, a minister at Akoteo Fokakalisi Tiane Kona Moa Church, says some are even without medicine. Most of the survivors lost all their belongings, even their um, passports and driver's license. Some, I think, one lost her car, totally lost her car. And um, so they're left with nothing, just the clothes on their back or what they were wearing when they came out. Despite that, he says they're doing okay. No one died, and um, everyone came out of this, and we're just, we're just happy and uh, grateful that the Lord has blessed them and the Lord has taken care of them. But church trustee Frank Colloy can't explain why none of the cabins, which house people desperately in need of accommodation, had smoke alarms. Uh, we're not sure at the, at the moment, and uh, we have gone through uh, some of the information that we have so far, and we're not sure why they weren't working or used. He wasn't aware landlords are responsible for installing smoke alarms, but says they are now being put into the other cabins. He says the buildings were there when the church bought the land in 1996 and had been refurbished, but it was planning to demolish and replace them. The first thing that came to mind this morning when I first heard the news is that, thank God, we will now start refurbishing and building uh, at the back proper housing for our families. Fire and Emergency suspects the fire was caused by an electrical fault, but Mr Kaloy insists the cabins are up to standard. We have always uh, tried to, to be compliant with council and we are regularly inspected and we have, we have continually maintained our warrant of fitness in, in those inspections. The Auckland Council says it can't comment because it doesn't have enough information about the buildings, but will look into it once it has the fire investigators' report. It's thanks to some quick thinking, the fire wasn't a lot worse. Frank Colloy says one of the residents quickly ran around unplugging gas bottles, which could have exploded. For neighbour May Hanna, it was terrifying being woken at three in the morning to a blaze just outside the window. He says they were told to grab what they could and evacuate, standing helplessly and wondering if he was about to lose the house he'd just bought. We were pretty shaken up by it, because especially once we saw um, the pine trees at the back of the property go up in flames, you know, we, we started to fear the worst there, but um, you know, we just had to 
just waited out. It wasn't until about five o'clock that we were allowed back in and, and we saw how lucky we were. For those not so lucky, there has been plenty of community help. The church says donations have been overwhelming, with hundreds of dollars, clothes, food, bedding and medicine flowing in. It's not clear yet whether families made homeless will be able to live. For now, they are staying at the church hall. Now, international counter-terrorism experts have considered whether police should have let distraught relatives back into the mosques in the aftermath of the 2019 Christchurch terror attack. Two experts from the United States and the United Kingdom gave evidence via audio-visual link to the inquest into the murders of 51 worshippers at Al Noor Mosque and Linwood Islamic Centre. Frank Strobe and Scott Wilson co-authored a report about the terror attack and were asked to critically examine the emergency response and a sergeant was in court. A lawyer for families of some of the victims, Catherine Dalzell, says they want to understand why people who were at Al Noor were told to leave the grounds and even threatened with arrest when they asked to go back inside and help the dying. The inquest has heard that paramedics didn't enter the mosque until 30 minutes after the gunman had left. They got told to leave the mosque. They got told to leave people they were trying to help. They wished they could have stayed there, even if there was survivability wasn't an issue. They wished they could have been there holding them at that time, praying with them at that time, and they refused that opportunity. She says one woman was left in the dark about her husband's condition for a whole day. We had one widow who was required to leave. Her husband subsequently died. It took her 24 hours to find out that he had died and she had to ask the Prime Minister of New Zealand um, whether or not she knew uh, if her husband was still alive. Former Police Chief Dr Frank Straub told the court he had read witness statements and they were heartbreaking. He says people already inside the mosque should have been allowed to stay unless they were interfering in the emergency response. I do think that people inside the mosque being allowed and assisting in the treatment of people inside the mosque is different than people from outside the mosque coming in or into any location because you don't necessarily know who those people are and god forbid they're part of the plot dr straub who has studied terror attacks in the u.s says controlling the scene is critically important for the safety of everybody inside and to the post-incident investigation his colleague, Scottish counter-terrorism expert Scott Wilson, agreed. I think Frank's made the point. If they're already in the scene and they're assisting, if they're, then, then they've got a part to play. But you can't start letting anyone into the scene who is a, a brother or a mother who's turned up if you don't know who they are. Uh, but if they're in the scene and they're with the loved one, then I would encourage you that they should be there to comfort the loved one and give assistance or be with them to the end. The experts were asked by another lawyer representing families, Anne Tui, about a communication breakdown that saw police leave victims in Al Noor alone for 10 minutes. Mr Wilson says it would have been understandable if police were needed elsewhere and paramedics were already with the victims, but there was no excuse for leaving them with no one. The experts will continue to give evidence this morning. And a sergeant with that report, 27 minutes past eight. 
Well, overseas researchers found that seismic signals provided clues of a looming quake well before the devastating earthquake that struck Turkey this year, and it could improve our ability to forecast future quakes. Now, scientists found the unique signals were detected up to eight months out from the 7.8 quake that struck in February, causing uh, widespread damage in southern Turkey and Syria and claiming tens of thousands of lives there. On the line with us now is GNS science uh, seismologist Dr. Matt Gerstenberger. Kia ora, good morning. Uh, what are these seismic signals this research is talking about? So we've, we've known for, for some time now when, when scientists create, they can create earthquakes in labs using kind of small rocks um, and they put it under great pressure and you get a, you get a bit or, big earthquake. And before that big earthquake, you see these kind of predictable patterns of really tiny micro earthquakes. And this is the first time that they've, they've been able to observe that actual phenomena happening in the Earth's crust as, as well. So are scientists continually monitoring for these, these signals? Yeah, yeah. So there's uh, most seismically active places around the world. We have seismic networks that are, that are kind of observing the earthquakes that are happening all the time. And so we're looking in that for those sorts of patterns. And how, how helpful or how accurate and reliable is this information in terms of predicting when and where a, a big quake will occur? So I think we still have a lot more to learn. So it's, it's one thing to, to know the big earthquake happened and look what happened um, prior to it. Um, but it's, it's a bit more difficult when they're happening in real time and to understand what will come in the future. So we have models today with our National Seismic Hazard Model now um, where we have we use this basic kind of information, but a much coarser scale than what they've they've seen in Turkey. So as we have more observations, like what wait, what they saw in Turkey, then we'll be able to improve the models that we're currently using. So how currently how accurate are our models? Because we sort of hear about once in a hundred and once in fifty year uh, quakes. Once you know something coming eight months or, or within a year, do we have anything like that? What we can do is what we would call forecasting. So this is showing where earthquakes are more more likely to occur, and this is what we can use for, for long-term planning, um, say, for building codes and that type of information. For, for short-term information, if it's in, say, an aftershock sequence, then we can do related things to that. Um, but, but otherwise, yeah, we, we still have a lot more we, we're, we're working on to learn. Can it also be, well, detrimental in, in telling a, a population that there may or may not be an earthquake coming in some very long extended period of time and, and people panic unnecessarily? Yeah, there's, there's obviously serious or interesting societal questions around that. There's countries that um, use things like earthquake early warning, so they know kind of once an earthquake has started, they can um, then say that, that the earthquake is coming and within some some minutes or seconds that they'll be shaking felt. Um, but the, yeah, there's lots of planning that needs to happen for all those types of things. Mm, okay, well, I'm glad that someone is looking into it for us. Uh, the, the more information, the better with these things. Thank you very much. It is uh, half past eight now. Well, the Taxpayers Union is offering to redesign, redesign the logos of government departments for free. Now, the lobby group says it is concerned about the potential cost of changing the names of government agencies. Its executive director, Jordan Williams, says logos do not need to be expensive, and he joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Corin. Uh, you're having a bit of a laugh here. What's this all about? Well, not really. Uh, we, I had one of my staff go back and look at the various rebrandings that we've criticised over the years, and it's just extraordinary. Look at something like the Ministry of Primary Industries, which uses the standard New Zealand government coat of arms, standardised font. They recently refreshed it 
which simply changed the colour of the background and quite literally changed the curved line underneath into a straight line, yet they spent 960 grand on it. Now, with this directive from the government that uh, the names of about 25 government agencies is going to be changing from Toreo back to English, now, don't want to get involved in that debate, you know, reasonable minds can differ, but what, from a taxpayer's union perspective, we're very concerned that officials are going to pick this up, as they often do with name changes, and use it for a total redesign with um, costing six figures for which taxpayers get absolutely zipped for. Mm. What we want to move to is what actually the last government instructed government agencies to do, however it was largely ignored, that is simply to use the standardised New Zealand government logo, which incorporates the coat of arms, with the names, name of the department in a standardised font. And frankly, we'll do that for free. We don't need to spend six figures for each government agency. You say you're not getting involved in this debate, but I mean, this you sure this isn't you sort of jumping in here to help defend the government because it's going to have to go through a process which was negotiated as part of a coalition agreement that is, some would argue, is a waste of time? Well, what I will say is that it is a waste of money to spend a cent on changing logos when we have a perfectly good New Zealand government logo brand guidelines already there. All you have to do is insert the name. Now, as I say... Yeah, yeah, but, but the issue here is about this issue of whether or not it's the English name first or the Māo Tareo. I mean, this has become a cultural war political issue. That's the, yeah. that's the fact of it. Yes, it has. And, I mean, we have pointed out before, you know, we did a, uh, as part of the Taxpayers' Union Courier polling, we asked New Zealanders, um, gave them a range of New Zealand uh, government agency names that have adopted the Tareo, and the vast majority, you know, the average New Zealander could not name or say what these departments do. So there is some evidence, you know, and we talk about the importance of plain language. There is some evidence that actually going back to English names serves the public better. But that is by the by. The fact is the government's agreed to doing that. OK, we just don't think that should cost New Zealanders millions of dollars. And that's what we're talking when you have government agencies spending six figures for each one. It's simply not needed. We'll do it for free. Yes, but, I mean, are you, in a sense, by offering to do it for free, uh, taking a bit of a heat away from a government, which which has well, no, no, been, no, been no, elected no, no, to make on, this decision? Only, it, it can do that, better. but it has to wear the consequences if there's some public criticism. Yeah, well, look, look, it's a perfectly valid criticism. If the government wastes or allows government agencies to waste anything more than, than, um, than you know, a, a, a couple of hours max of, graphic desi- of, of desi- work from graphic designer. We will be all over that like a rash. Right. Taxpayers do not get value from government agencies spending up the wazoo on brands. You look at um, AT, for example. They literally have someone that's paid about the same as a cabinet minister who's head of brand. They're the monopoly provider for buses, for goodness sake. We yeah, yeah, okay. I'm going to try and defend uh, people who do this for a living because there is obviously some point to branding and to of design. Course, of course there is. It of has to, it has to convey what the organisation is, their ethos. Uh, are you suggesting that anybody on their Mac Pro can do this, you know, in their living room? 
Well, well, actually, you apply the New Zealand government brand guidelines for that standardised logo. That's exactly what I'm saying. Because unlike, you know, private enterpriser, um, or in fact, even let's just around New Zealand, um, for example, you are a media organisation, you're competing against others. Fair enough that you would invest in brand and I see you have, you know, you have billboards around the city. Should we just very have... very different from monopoly... Um, uh, government agencies. Mm. Look at, for example, you know, road um, uh, NZT, so the Waka Kotahi's Road to Zero, or the Let's Get Wellington Moving. You know, both of those examples spent mega bucks on their own individual brands. Well, I'm sorry, that's not even a, de- a department. They're simply plans. Uh, by a department. Jordan, should we have a one-stop shop here that does it for all governments? That there should be a standardised sort of approach here that, you know, takes it out so so that, um, you know, there is some cost management here. Would that be the way to do it? Absolutely. That's what the the Brits do. It's what most Australian states do. And the brand guidelines, the the whole reason you um, have brand guidelines, and I mean, you know, I'm not criticising the the digital marketing or the creative industry. You know, I actually own a digital marketing company. Um, it, it's, it is simply not required to waste time on it when you've already got a perfectly good brand, logo, coat of arms and brand guidelines. All right. We've got to go, but I want to put you on the spot very quickly, Jordan. Uh, should government departments be getting real Christmas trees or fake ones? <laughs> I, uh, I, I sure you've got a view. Come on. I'm, I love the smell of a real Christmas tree. But don't tell the Taxpayers Union. <laughs> Very good. Thank you, Jordan. <laughs> Jordan Williams, the Executive Director of the Taxpayers Union, with some thoughts there about logos. You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories.